healthcare services around the world are reeling from the consequences of a pandemic. We have news media and social media that are full of discontent with the provision of these core services. And we hear the word crisis so regularly. Sometimes it's easy to forget what normal is. So much of our healthcare system is devoted to the treatment of disease rather than well-being and prevention. So much so that we are seeing our hospitals full of patients with worsening amenable disease with ultimately worst health outcomes. Joining me today is Dr. David Geller, retired intensive care doctor, health leader, and author of the book, Things That Matter, to talk about his experiences in the intensive care unit. He shares with us his insights of working both as a clinician with our sickest people, as well as the difficulties of trying to drive change as a leader within the bureaucracy. If we only focus on our treatments, we will continue to chase our own tails by refusing to focus on the real drivers of poor health. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. So thank you for coming on this podcast, David. I really want to understand why does an intensive care doctor care so much about public health and the wider society? I think it's a pretty easy question to answer, I think, Nina. Yeah, that was my vocation for many years. But before that and during that time, I was also a person. You're also a person. Oh, yeah. yeah, I lived a life. I was out in the world and I met people. I got to like people. And in fact, actually... I think I probably went into medicine largely because I liked people and I continue to like people more than I liked medicine, which I think sometimes is not always the case for others, where medicine becomes a kind of all-consuming rabbit hole that people can go down and actually becomes, and we become more enamored with the things that we do to people than with the people themselves. And I suppose I went to medical school a bit late. I wasn't sure what to do with myself. I was a student for a while, and I was I worked as a bus driver for a period of time, and and I did. I was in, the, in those days when we did CAF one at the university. I got a pretty shabby degree, and with some religious studies and some classics, and a bit of botany and a bit of zoology, you know. But but I was a, I maintained a real interest in people, and medicine was just a means for me to deepen that interest and to have more experiences and more conversations. And I was really lucky to have that happen to me. And so that's, I think, why I moved more into that broader aspect of public health, largely because the people who ended up in the intensive care at Middlemore Hospital changed over the length of my career, actually, Nina. At the beginning, there was, a, there was quite a lot of trauma. There's a lot of alcohol around and drink driving, and there were fights and various things like that. But as time went by, and I worked there for 32 years, as time went by, that sort of shift occurred where people were coming in with complications of preventable chronic disease. 
And that became the predominant case mix, actually. People who came in with problems that actually should and could have been avoided. I've said it before to lots of people that the job, in a funny sort of way, became a bit like repairing broken panes of glass and demolished buildings. And you would repair the pane of glass and you'd send the person back out into the community where nothing had changed. A revolving door yeah, syndrome, some might say. They'd come back with three broken windows next time and you repair those three broken windows, you send them back and then they wouldn't come back because they're dead. And it just seemed like such a waste to me to not have a kind of a more comprehensive view of how we use our health services and get best value out of them to ensure that we keep people well and to keep them fulfilled for themselves, their families, their communities. So that was where it really came from, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you think the remit of our health system has grown larger over time and perhaps its focus has been spread across too many different areas? I think we've got a fundamental issue in not being clear about purpose. What are we trying to do here? Now, it seems daft to me to keep on spending money on things that we can prevent. So that seems really daft to me. Have we, have we spread too far? I actually think that pronouns and words matter. We have a Minister of Health and a Ministry of Health. We should have a Minister for Health and a Ministry for Health that actually recognises specifically and includes in its policy development and its implementation of those policies a range of things that that actually across multiple domains of activity to ensure that people we do everything as possible that we can to keep people as well as possible and to actually keep them in the workforce keep them to maximize our ability to collect taxes to reduce our expenditure on things that we don't need to spend and actually to give people better lives i would have thought that's something i would have expected of governments to be stewards for the people. But I think we've, we don't do that. I think that's been lost a little bit. So the question, have we spread, has health been spread and asked to do too much? Health specifically can't fix um, many of the issues that come to its front door in the same way that justice can't fix many of the issues that turns up at the police station or the courthouse. And so we need to be much more joined up around what we're trying to create and recognise the roles that we have and the opportunities that exist to do things better and differently. And that's something that we just haven't really embraced, unfortunately. That brings me to my question about your role when you were working with the when you're working with the Ministry of Health, you were yeah. principal advisor. Yeah, to I was, it was a funny it was a funny job that, and I did it for seven years, half time as an intensive care doctor and half time working as a the principal medical advisor to the Director General of Health and the Minister of Health. And who, who was the Minister of Health at the time? It was Annette King was the first Minister of Health, and then there was Pete Hodgson, David Cunliffe. And then there was a change of government, and for a short period of time, nominally I was there for the new minister, which was Tony Ryle, but I didn't have anything to do with him at all, and he didn't have anything to do with me. But the role itself was quite a unique role because it arose out of the first that first Labour government of 1999, Helen Clark's government came in, Annette King was the health minister at the time. I was the vice president of the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists. I'd been on a sabbatical in 2001, 2002 to the Kennedy School in, at, at, uh, at Harvard and Boston, and, and I'd had three months there. And I'd come home and I was, my head was full of possibility. It really was. It was an extraordinary experience. And I remember coming home and 
the union were grumpy. And the health unions were grumpy, and they were a bit grumpy with Annette. And they were particularly grumpy because there was a sense that she was not being well served by the Ministry of Health, that the advice that she was being given was a bit narrow. It didn't really reflect the real issues that people felt the Ministry should be working towards and, and advising prior her Prior to that about. time, was there like a lack of people with recent clinical experience in the Ministry? Um, or? I think... I think it's hard for me to know, Nina. I'd say probably, yes. I think there's a probably there would have been. Yeah, there would have been. And, and, uh, and they were a bit disconnected. And uh, I think that has been a, a major problem in our public services the whole way through, not just in health, that they serve different masters. So in a funny sort of a way, we've got ministries that sort of are there for the minister. And actually, in a funny sort of way, one of the things I used to say to Annette was that, was that if the sector is working really well, you will be happy. So actually your focus needs to be an outward-looking focus to ensure that sector is working really well, that you join up the, the bureaucrats and the ministry officials with those people who are actually delivering services to walk alongside them, to understand the nature of the work that they actually do, to understand the barriers to them being successful, to help broker away those barriers, to help them develop real-time, relevant measures of performance that can be used for improvement, to challenge them to do things differently to develop relationships with these people, to join up. In 2001 to, it was 2003 it was actually, we had this, the union and myself and a couple of other people met with Annette King at our offices in Wellington. And we really were pretty straight with her about how disappointed we were that the opportunity to do things better was being missed and that the ministry wasn't serving the sector well and it wasn't serving her well. Could you give us a bit of context as to what was going on in the health sector at that point? I like, think it's not just similar to what's going on now, Nina, to tell you the absolute truth. That people talking past each other, people not joined up on the same page, they're not working together, not actually addressing the real issues that face people. So they are enduring issues. These There wasn't a unique set of issues and the same things exist today in various forms that sometimes are, the issue today is probably more pressing. In fact, many of the issues now are much more pressing than they were back then because I don't think any of these issues have been really addressed. What we tried to do and what we said to her was we thought the ministry needed a bomb under it. Blow it up is what we said. It was quite interesting <laughs> because <laughs> we had a conversation with Bill English on a podcast yeah. a couple of episodes yeah. ago and more or less said a very similar thing that he because he'd been Minister of Health for yeah, some I amount of time. Yeah, I Minister of Health. And he was saying that, oh, it just feels like the whole ministry is sclerotic. It's yeah. incapable of change. Yeah. I think that public servants, the, the issue around the public services, that they're, they're not about change. They're actually about status quo. They're about the protect, they're protecting the status quo. They're there about managing risk. Their ability to be agile is absent. They, it's hard for them to be agile, actually, given how they operate currently and how they operated back then. It was very hard for them to be agile. And so what we said to Annette was, blow it up. You need to do something. You need to get a different range of advice here. She didn't do that. <laughs> what she did instead was to create a position, a unique position, hadn't, been, hadn't had one before, and that was the principal medical advisor that reported to her, to the minister, and to the director general and sat on the executive team of the ministry. And the, the role of the principal medical advisor was really to try and, as I saw it, to make, to be a broker largely, between the bureaucracy and the workforce. And that job was advertised, and I didn't apply for it. 
You didn't apply for no, it. No, I didn't apply for it. And, so um, there's assuming that there were other people that did apply for yeah, it. And they got it. Yeah. So the first person to get it was a, a guy called Rob Buist, um, who was an obstetrician and gynecologist at National Women's in those days. Or was it National Women's? It would have been National Women's, I think, in those days. And he got that job. And after about a year and a half, he had a change in his personal life and moved to Australia, and the job was re-advertised, and I applied for it. I was asked to apply for it. I had just been made the president of the ASMS, actually, and I was asked to apply for this job, and I was in a terrible position because I'd just taken the job as the president of the ASMS. And this, and then I was asked about this job, and I had no idea that it was coming up, and suddenly it did, and, and someone asked me to ask to apply, and it was a serious ask, and I applied for it, and I got it, and I resigned as the president of the ACMS, which was a really difficult and bad thing to do to the union, I have to say. And Why? What happened? They just got, it was just awkward. It was not a good look, and it was just, it was perhaps a bit selfish on my part. I look back on it now. But it was actually a fascinating job, and I'm glad I did it. What do you think that, was it a shock when you initially went into it? What did it teach you? What, I, what was really interesting for me was that I had a particular view of the ministry, without knowing too many people who worked there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was really interesting. And when I arrived there, I found it really hard to find my way around. And Geographically? The, my, my very first meeting, actually, was an executive team meeting. And it was at the old bank building on Lampton Quay. And Karen was, Karen Patassi was Dame Patassi, Karen Patassi. She was the DG and she was terrific, actually. And there was, she had her executive there and there were some, some really good people there. And I found it a bit intimidating, to tell you the truth. And I went there and I listened, and it was my very first experience. And then I went up to Molesworth Street, and I was given a desk in an open plan area. And, and I didn't really have a work program. And I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it or what I was going to do. And I had this view that those people would be a bit hostile and wary of me and may not be particularly welcoming. They were a bit wary of me, I have to say, but they were welcoming. And, and what I found was a whole lot of people who were really smart and actually very nice, really nice people who, in a funny sort of a way, really wanted to make a bigger contribution than they were able to make doing what they were doing. And so what I tried to do was I, I tried to help them. So I would, for example, there would be someone doing some policy on organ donation. I would talk to them about my own experience of that. I'd say, look, how about meeting some of the people who are involved, so the intensive care doctors, some of the organ transplant people, the donor coordinators. So I would connect them up with the people doing the work. And people would come to me and, they, and ask me things, and I would always say yes. I said yes to absolutely everybody who came up. And eventually, more and more people came up to ask for, could you introduce me to, or what do you think of this? Will you help me with this piece of work, or that piece of work, or someone who might be able to help me? And I would say yes. I said yes to absolutely every single request that came to me. And when it came to the things that I wanted to do, because actually I did have a bit of an agenda in the end, <laughs> I, 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 they were much more willing to help me because I helped them. But you know what? There's no shortage of talent there, and, and there's real firepower too, and there's a lot of data. And if that firepower and that data was more focused and joined up with the people who were delivering the services and the people who were receiving the services, and you joined that up in a much more sentient system, 
than we've got now as opposed to the sort of degrees of fragmentation that come and go depending on structures and personalities and times we would be pretty awesome to tell you the truth because there's and actually there's no shortage of will people have find themselves trapped in systems of how things have been done and and it's quite hard to break out of those to do things differently and it does really require real leadership to do that and and leadership and a plan we haven't really managed that and i think sometimes despite our best efforts the tyranny of the now and the pressure that the system is constantly under do you mean in terms of the pressure to change health outcomes and statistics now rather than looking at what interventions i think just the pressure of keeping up and providing services and doing things for the people that need things to be done, the waiting lists, all of those sorts of things, right across the board, managing the demands for services that are growing exponentially. Those things become all-consuming and don't leave a lot of time or energy to take us to the next step. So that's, I think that's been an ongoing issue for us for a long time. Do you think one of the issues that we have is this continuity issue whereby one government comes in, it starts to pick up the pieces and learn a bit more about the issues, but by the time it gets going or starts to grasp those issues, someone else comes in and they're starting again from zero. Is that, would you say that's an issue? Yeah, I think we absolutely do need long-term planning and health and in many other aspects of the stewardship of the people. There's no question about that for me, that a three-year term is absurd. And when you think about (laughs) if that's going to mean we start again or we do things completely differently, it's just nuts. No, I think that's absolutely nuts. And and again, we need to be clear about what we're trying to create here. We... We're very unsophisticated in how we deal with these things. So we have this little bucket called health and we have this little bucket called housing and we have this little bucket called whatever it is. And we deal with them individually in silos. silos. And yes, there have been various attempts to try and, and I talk about that in one of the chapters of the book, I think, the whole of government chapter and where where we and the executive team had to wear a hat with WOG written on it to remind us that we were working, we wanted to work across the whole of government. That's very funny. <laughs> but, but, but we really struggle with that, this idea of defining a purpose, uh, a goal, what we're trying to create here. When you entered the role, principal advisor role, yeah. did you find that people were clear on the mandate, they, the, the things that they needed to focus on in order to drive the change, or were they actually unsure of what are the priorities here? Oh, no, I think that there was there was clarity around some of the priorities in health. There's no question about that. And some of those were driven by ministers and governments' priority areas. But they were narrowish. And if you think about that 80% of a population's health status is determined by things outside of health, you're really only skimming the surface by doing those things. And you have to do those things. There's no question about that. But actually, health care has a significant and very important role to play in keeping people healthy. But actually, no matter how much you might invest in health care, if you don't address those broader issues, 
with a view to maintaining people's well-being and hawora, you know, whatever, or wellness, you're never going to keep up. And I think that's where we fall down. That So yes, people, for the plans that they drew, people knew what they were and they worked towards those plans. Now, whether that work was joined up with the, that, with that, 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 policy work was actually joined up in meaningful ways with the delivery is very questionable. For too long, we've had lots of expert advisory committees that come into ministries and devote people devote a lot of their time to suggesting, trying to give their ideas, their expertise, share their experience in the hope that there will be meaningful change. And more often than not, the experience has been that that advice is homogenized by ministry officials into some mm. kind of bland pap. That was what the reform was supposed to address, actually. The, the, the health reform that was a very ambitious thing. You mean the current Tafatu Order yeah, reform? Yeah, that reform was, a, and that was the government, and it came out of the Simpson report, of course, and the Crampton alternative report on Chiakafai Order, having commissioning rights and a budget. And, but actually that reform was said to be transformational, and it was, it was set up around a range of different outcomes that were clearly articulated in the cabinet papers. The whole idea of transformation is actually, a, transformation is an outcome-related concept. It's actually about looking at what are the resources we've got, what's the need, what are the outcomes we're trying to create here, how do we refashion our resources or what new resource might we need to deliver on those outcomes. I feel like the word transformation has been used as know, like buzzword. A, Everyone's know. talking oh, about transformation, yeah, it's whether it's health vomit. or public service or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah it doesn't mean anything anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. People hear it and they just roll their eyes, don't they? And you think, oh, fuck, more of this crap. But actually, you know, that. but that's the real meaning of the word. And it's a shame, actually, that words that, you know, should have impact uh, have been They've become meaningless have because become they can become overused yeah, for better meaning. It's, it's the cry the wolf thing, isn't yeah. it? And so it's a shame. It's not the word's fault. It's not the word's fault. I think another thing as yeah. well is things like the word diversity. Yeah. We want diverse things, yeah. absolutely, but I think it's been used yeah. so much yeah. to the point where it's like, what does it mean anymore? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Anyway, so the transformation thing, that was what it was supposed to be about. And, and the reform... The criticism right from the get-go was this is a big centralization of things. And that was never supposed to be that, actually. Really? What, no, it was never. What was supposed to be centralized, if you think about it in a way, it's, and it's not so terrible, is that there was supposed to be real clarity around policy and real clarity around outcomes, but actually recognizing at the same time that delivery is contextual and actually the delivery on those outcomes can only be done by those people closest to where services are delivered. And the role of the centre is to support those people to be successful for those people that they serve. So actually it's a devolved decision-making model to push out decision-making as far as you can and, and actually to let go. And unfortunately what happened was that the, there was also this desire to get best value from the duplication that exists that existed in the old system, the 20 different district health boards and the six other entities or whatever it was, to get best value by looking at efficiencies in the, some of the backroom functions and various things like that. And, and, this, and you would have to say on the face of it that you would expect there to be those efficiencies there, that you don't necessarily need 26 of everything. But how you do that without 
losing touch with your local population is actually quite hard, I have to say. And actually focusing in on that, and I think what has happened is that a lot of energy has been sucked up in, in that aspect of moving those 26 entities into one or two. And the issue around actually the emphasis on supporting people to be successful locally has fallen by the wayside a little bit. Because well, I think quite the, substantially. the feedback that I've seen yeah. amongst other doctors who have leadership positions in yeah. wherever and whatever department yeah. is saying that they're trying to make changes locally and it's yeah. harder than ever before yeah. because the management are saying, oh, yeah. in Hawke's Bay, the management are saying that they need Wellington to yeah. give the okay. See, yeah, that's not how it's supposed to have been. And I've heard that criticism and it's been a criticism that's been around right through the reform, actually, that actually in a funny sort of a way, there's a vacuum of leadership locally and people aren't making decisions. So people are so used to being told what to do locally through the district health boards, when they're not being told what to do, no one's doing it. Mm. And there is also a, there is also a kind of, there are, in some areas I think there is also that issue of, there is a bit of a victim thing out in the health sector too sometimes. You what know, do you mean by that? Oh, I think people have been disempowered for so long that if they have the opportunity to take power, they don't know what to do. I think the systems within healthcare are the opposite of agile. So... As a trainee, I would give feedback about what I think needs to change, yeah. how we can make things more efficient and yeah. better, and my frustration about unsafe rosters and all this kind of stuff. Nothing's yeah. changed, really. Yeah. And the feedback that I get is, oh, we can't really make that change, so it's probably better if you just put your head down and just yeah. get on with it. And yeah. I find that frustrating. And for me, I guess I haven't just sat down and sat with that. I've gone and be like, no, I'm going to talk yeah. about it and get angry and do other yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's why you yeah. started this podcast, Nina. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a smart move. I, I think this issue of managing your career is quite tricky, isn't it? You know, How did you do it? Well, You're telling me that you're saying yes to everything as the yeah. principal medical yeah. advisor, and you're also working part-time as an intensive care doctor. How, yeah. Did you sleep? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did sleep. But I've got to say that I owe a, lot, a, a big debt of gratitude to my colleagues in the ICU for allowing me to do that because actually the burden of running that place, I can come and do shifts and do all those sorts of things. But actually running that place, like any department, requires people to be really there more than half time. You know, you need some serious full-timers who are taking a real interest in how that place stays a good place to work. It stays current. It's it's constantly improving as a place to work for the staff, but also getting better outcomes for patients and their families. But you do have to manage your career. You do have to manage your career. You cannot just go down the gurgler and, and you're no use to anybody if you go down the gurgler and just get burnt out. And that happens too often. It's terrible. And, we, and there are some things that people can do for themselves. And there are lots of things that need to happen from a structural point of view to maintain, to help people maintain that sort of balance. So there's but it's a really significant issue. And I think about that work in, at Middlemore when, you know, that. and for me, some of it, that, that broken pane of glass, three broken panes of glass dead, and th then there's someone else, and then there's someone else, and there's someone else, and they're all presenting with the same sorts of issues and nothing is being done about it. It's a bit like my partner, Emma, the judge, who started the, helped start the drug courts, sitting up there sentencing people, the revolving door of recidivist criminal activity driven by addiction. Deal with the addiction. Deal mm. with the addiction. Mm. Deal with the causes of that stuff. If you don't deal with that, we're all a bit fucked. Everyone loses. We pay more and more for healthcare.
there. There's huge personal costs to those people, their families and the communities. And the opportunity cost of, is just massive of what they could do if they were well. So could you share some stories from the ICU about the classic cases that you're seeing or some case that was the most profound for you in terms of driving you to do this other oh, way? That you- there's lots of them. There's tons of them. The, I used to talk about the South Auckland Full House, and, I've, and I think I've mentioned that before. And it really starts with the food environment and obesity and diabetes, and then the consequences of diabetes on the macro and microvasculature and multi-organ dysfunction, so ischemic heart disease. Most people had hypertension, most people had renal disease, and most people had gout, actually, as an aside, because it's a big Pacific Island population, so there's a six-card hand there, and huge swathes of people had that, and they would come in with those sorts of issues. The the young man who, when I lay him down to put a central line in, because, you know, he was in renal failure and we need to get a dialysis cath. I lay him down and he stopped breathing and died because he was so obese. Because he had this sort of restrictive thing from his chest wall. Mm-hmm. Just lay him down, he just stopped and shut, he died. And things like that. And you think, oh my God, terrible thing. And how do you not get desensitized? Because I think sometimes working in the emergency department, I see all these big cases all the time. Yeah. And you start talking like and it's different because I've been only been working part-time yeah. as well so I have my other life and then I come back to it and then I hear people talk about the stories of oh yeah blah 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 this is and this happened and we we're like oh that's crazy but then yeah. we don't necessarily give it the full weight of how crazy it is so how yeah. do you yeah, not get desensitized <clears throat> to that you have to have some ability to shield yourself you have to be able to do that because if you if you felt the depth of anguish that those families and those patients were forced to feel. You, you wouldn't last five minutes, you know. Well, what do you think about <laughs> so, the... So you do have to develop, you know. So that whole thing, you know, so there's that whole... You know, empathy. The, yeah, there's got to be empathy, and you can do that on a one-to-one basis. But actually, when you're on your own, with your, when you're with your group, you know how the, we tell stories to each other. We, we have terrible black humour, don't we? And, we do. And there is this whole thing about the whole issue around schadenfreude, schadenfreude, that terrible... It's an interesting term, isn't it? Taking pleasure out of other people's misfortune. And we... And that kind of stuff can be protective, but it can also be damaging, can be quite damaging. So you have to watch that whole issue around those emotions and how you compensate for them so you don't become callous and cold Hmm. and immune to the suffering of others. The stories that Nina has told many stories of her time in emergency department and she's certainly described at least one or two people that have become like that, sort of quite cold and callous. Is that a bug or is that a feature of the current health system we have? I've been around a while in health, but not as it's been going on for a long time. And people talk about how patronizing um, people in medicine often were in the past. And, that, and I still remember as a house surgeon, ward rounds that were extraordinary. Flying wedges where no one would address the patient, no one would look them in the eye, no one would talk to them, they'd talk amongst themselves. And that was de rigueur, that's how it was. I think we're far better off today than we were when I started. When I look, when I remember back to those days at, at how that we 
treated people like they were cars. <laughs> and we were <laughs> panel beaters. And we were panel beaters or changing oh, their carburetor wow. or doing stuff like that. Maybe this. an orthopedic surgeon suggests that perhaps <laughs> yeah. maybe that is how you still see your patients. <laughs> well, some do and some don't. What I've learned safe is Safe answer. That, yeah, yeah, it is a safe answer. But what I have learned is that the vast majority of people do feel very much for their people that they're looking after. Sometimes they, they don't express that particularly well. The whole issue of who we pick to come into medical school and what the hurdles they need to jump and what we do to them during that training and what we emphasise about what they need to learn. And um, I guess for me, I think know, about it a lot yeah. about my own journey yeah. into medical school. Yeah. Did high school, Yeah. went to uni at 17, yeah. got into medical school. At Auckland? At Auckland. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't think I had informed consent when I got into medical yeah, school. Yeah, so you didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I didn't know who I was. Yeah. I didn't know until yeah. four, four years yeah. into medical school yeah. that there's this thing called a 15-hour yeah. shift. I didn't yeah. know yeah. that existed. Yeah. So I didn't feel like I had informed consent yeah. when I was told, like, yeah, you should What do you think we should do? How do you think well, it should be different? I reflected a lot and I'm like, I don't think I was ready to make those decisions of getting into yeah. medical school at 17. Yeah. And I think more to, to your yeah. experience as well of doing other stuff, yeah, getting learning late. other things. Yeah having a broader mind and thinking yeah. about people. Yeah. I don't know what it's like in America, and I know that in Australia they have some medical schools that are postgraduate, yeah. but then I wonder if actually we need that as well. I think that's. I think that's, I think there should be the option of that, and in a funny sort of a way, I'll say, look, I think all medical training should be a four-year graduate program. I'm starting to think that yeah. way as well, and I'm yeah. thinking, would I, think I have be been too. a better doctor if I'd done like a bachelor's yeah. in philosophy? Yeah. Or, or No. You might have been. But <laughs> you often describe encountering people who are young doctors, but it's like a race to the finish. I've got a yeah. race to get to the yeah. next exam and complete that. Yeah. But is that a perverse incentive structure that we've built into the way that we've done medicine as opposed to... Because it's so terrible yeah. to be a registrar, yeah. to be a consultant as soon yeah. as possible. Yeah, medicine is one of those incredibly addictive things that, you know, that once you get your first dose of it and you're in the midst of it, you want a bit more of it and a bit more of it and a bit more of it. And I used to joke with people that, you know, that you go straight from medical school into, straight from school into medical school and, and lo and behold, you're on, you're there at the dissecting table and suddenly you see someone on the other side and you lock eyes and, and you, as the, your common experience going through that training deepens. You fall in love and you, you get married or you don't, or but you form a long-term relationship with them. And then, then 10 years later, you wake up in bed and you think, fuck, what's happened to my life? Where's it gone? And you've just got lost. And I just worry that people, and the reason I say that is you get lost in this world of medicine and the medicine becomes the kind of the draw card, the, the fascination, you, not you the fo- people. And I remember, I'm going to tell you a story now. There was a young man who came into the emergency department at Middlemore years and years ago and when I was, and I was in the intensive care unit and I came down to see him at one point. And he was a man who had a physical disability. I think he had a form of cere- cerebral palsy, I think. But it was he, he, his ability to speak was significantly impaired and he had some physical disabilities. And he came in and his complaints or the issues that I think the caregiver came in with him were put down to his long-term condition and weren't taken particularly seriously until it became a bit obvious and a bit too late and the man died. Someone. Um, 
And, and I was the clinical director, I remember, at the time of the emergency department. And so I fielded all the complaints and I tended to meet the families. And, and I met the sister of this young man and I could still rem- see him and I can see her and I can remember their name. And in the end, I felt terrible about what had happened and I think all the staff did too. But actually it was, how are we going to... Come back from it? Come back from that. And she offered to come and speak, and she did a grand round um, to, to the staff at Middlemore. And actually, you could hear a pin drop. People were tearing up in there. It was a very moving and emotional session. And in a funny sort of a way, and my sense is that maybe an hour later, some people will have forgotten that. For some people, it may have taken a day. For some people, it may have taken a week. For some people, they'd never forget it. <laughs> but one of the things I think that we could do really well is just to be have means of reminding ourselves pretty regularly why we're here, what we're here to do. And for a lot of people, and I don't want to overgeneralize this because I think that I do actually think the, the vast majority of people are aware of these things, but are caught up in systems that don't allow them to or don't value that don't, that don't create the opportunity for those relationships or for that that kind of reward because it isn't a tribute those systems don't attribute a sort of economic value no, to, to that yeah. yeah no human relationship yeah. and, you know you talk to the general practice community all the time they talk about it all the time that this is the 10 minutes through the door there's no time when you know and and it's tricky because the real rewards in medicine i think human rewards when I was working, it wouldn't be uncommon for once a week for someone who I didn't recognize to stop me and to say, oh, you looked after my brother, sister, mother, son, whatever. And sometimes we forget, and I used to say this to the registrars actually, that every time you go and see somebody, despite the fact that it might be the 50th person you're seeing today, it's likely that, you'll be, that you will be the first doctor that they're seeing today and they will be watching you and they remember and they clock what you do, how you appear, your body language, with you scrolling through your phone, just looking at your computer. You know? Yeah, it's not what you say, it's how you make people feel. feel that's exactly what it yeah. is, you know, and that's absolutely true. And people do clock that and they remember it. And and so, not that, I just say that to them, because it's we are, we're, that's a huge part of the job. And I think your job in intensive care, it's literally life yeah. or death. And in my job in emergency department, it's sometimes life or death, yeah. but... Every encounter, I think, as clinicians, whether it's in the hospital or in the community, might not be a life and death situation, but it's a it could be a life altering interaction, right? In terms of it could be the most profound positive experience that sends someone into a different trajectory. And I think we need to remind ourselves that as well. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Reading through your book, Things That Matter, and also throughout the play, Things That Matter, I guess something talked about a lot is the relationship with your parents and family. And I guess something that was, to me anyway, that I felt was probably very influential for you would be your mother, who your parents are both Polish Jews and your mother actually survived Auschwitz. She was nine years old, I believe. Yeah, she was about nine. Yeah, she was about nine. Maybe, let me think, possibly 11. Mm. Yeah. And I want to understand a bit more about 
how that experience or growing up with parents that had that experience influenced yeah. you as a doctor or you yeah. and, as a person? Yeah. I think it had enormous influence on me as a person. There's no question about that. We grew up in Wellington, my brother and I, and my parents, my father had been trained as a lawyer in Poland and, and he left just as the Germans invaded. And quite interestingly, actually, he ended up in Britain after spending some time in a sort of camp in Romania where he was locked up for a while. And locked up? What for? I think he was just, I think he was stateless. And so a lot of people ended up in these various internment camps and then they were allowed to move on. And so he ended up going to the UK. And I say this because it's interesting, because it's all about whakapapa this, isn't it? And as you get older, you start to realise more and more how you know your past has shaped you and that actually you're in this thing, this continuance of everything that's gone before you and here for a millisecond and then you've got a chance to... You're changed by the past. You are shaped by the past and you have a, an opportunity to help shape a little bit of what might be a future for somebody else. And so there's a great... And as you get older, and those things become quite important. And actually, for many cultures, it's important for everyone, and Māori in particular. That idea of whakapapa is everything. And it's a very interesting issue for me. And my old man ended up joining a Polish army in London and fought in Tobruk and Monte Cassino and various places like that, and was stateless at the end of the war. And he had befriended the commander of the New Zealand troops at Monte Cassino, a guy called Brigadier Cyril Ettrick Weir. Stephen Weir, I think, is, was what they called him at the time. And after the war, my father was stateless and he didn't have a place to go to, and they kept in contact. And Weir got him to New Zealand. And he came to Wellington and he didn't want to do law, so he started a business, you know, schmutter, clothes. It's what us Jews do well, you know, and he started a little clothes business and he did pretty well for himself. And five years later, in 1952, he was 40 and unmarried and he went to Israel and he met my mother, who was 18 years younger than him. And he was there for six weeks and they were married up about week four. Uh, or five, actually, maybe week six, actually, just before he came home. <laughs> and then she came out three months later because she needed to get a passport. And and she'd had all these experiences too. And, and so these things are quite big, those events. And, and then their links back through their families into their own history is really uh, some extraordinary stories. And that whole idea of who you are is largely shaped by your past. And And the more you find out and discover about your own past or your family's history and what and their place it helps you sort yourself out and your place which helps sort out the place of your children too and so it's huge and it's very human and every single person that i've ever treated is in exactly the same situation they're no different from me so they have these feelings they're no different mm. for fuck's sake and that's what i that's why i see this kind of a sort of appalling situation where we have abandoned so many people. We set them up to fail. There's yeah. a whole lot of structural things in mm. society. You look at tax cuts. So the, the millionaire gets a tax cut, and the tax cut will be 100000 The person on 50000 gets a tax cut of 5000 so the person on 50000 with his extra 5000 you know, he's got a lot more money in his pocket and thinks he's doing quite well, but actually... 
the vast majority of the money is going to the rich. And what do they do with the rich? What do they do with their extra money? Buy more jet skis. They buy more jet skis. They buy more <laughs> houses. They buy more health care. They accumulate assets. Money is a means of storing, of uh, accumulating assets. They buy more and more assets. Look, I don't know enough about the economics of it, but the issue is real. What is the end game here? How is this going to play out? I mean, there are what we're talking about are structural impediments that keep people poor at the expense of making the rich richer. That's what we've seen, and that is the way of the world is currently structured. That's the way the economic system is currently structured. And if we want that to change, my sense is that not only are the poor now feeling the pinch, but the middle class is very much feeling the pinch, that we've got people working two jobs. We know we've got the cost of living thing, the inflation thing. People are working their butts off. Mortgages are pretty tricky. Housing supply is not keeping up with demand. Houses are really expensive. The assets that actually provide opportunity for people to reach their potential are not evenly distributed because wealth is not evenly distributed. In fact, it's extremely unevenly distributed. So if you want to deal with that, you have to redistribute wealth. You've got to tax the wealthy. Would you re Would you uh, redistribute some of your wealth? Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> I pay tax all my life. Yeah, I would. Of course we would. I would pay tax. I pay tax now. Mm. Of course. I, you I, have to do that. What's really interesting is if you were to look at the, uh, as people become increasingly wealthy, how much tax do they actually pay? And you will probably find <laughs> that the vast majority of people with not that much money pay tax. The vast majority of people with moderate amounts of money pay tax. The vast majority of people with no reasonable amount of money pay tax. There's a hell of a lot of people with shitloads of money don't pay tax. I wonder if part of it is also people would feel more emotionally engaged and more, more emotionally attached into paying more tax. And it could be a perceptions thing if they actually felt that- They got something for it. They, yeah, they got something <laughs> for it, but also that they could, that they could see there was some yeah. noticeable good Benefit, there's no yeah. benefit for it, yeah. I remember going to Denmark years and years ago, and things may have changed enormously. Uh, and it was a friend of mine who had moved there. She was Danish, actually. Her parents were Danish uh, and had come to New Zealand. Uh, he was a vet and had come here in the 50s or 60s, uh, and they lived down in um, uh, Morrinsville, where Jacinda came from, actually. Um, and she ended up going to live back in Copenhagen with her kids. She had three kids. And... and we went to visit her not long after she'd moved back. We had to be away. And she showed us what what had happened since she'd arrived. And she'd had notices from three different schools with talking about the benefits of this school versus that school and all that sort of stuff. There was all of these services that were available to her and to her children that the state and the city were making available to her so she knew how to take advantage of those things. To So she was able to not only integrate into society there, but actually do well there. So the, the transport was relatively straightforward and free, and it was not free, but it was low cost. It's and a beauty of a country yeah. that has a lot of natural gas and yeah, all that. It may well be, but it's actually a question of what you prioritise. And, and so the, what you saw there, and they had a very high tax rate. It's really high. At the time, I don't know what it is today, but it was incredibly high. But quite clearly, there was benefit. Some of the younger people there thought too high. They'd grown up with it and they thought, oh my God. They just, after a while, they just thought it was too high. But it's quite interesting to see how different countries manage these things. There's a lot of misinformation around now, of course, and there's a, there are a whole 
There are conspiracies, true conspiracies, <laughs> to actually influence people one way or another. And that's problematic now, and it's becoming increasingly typical. What would you say is a misinformation that's going around? Oh, I think there's a lot of misinformation about tax, for example, that we're all going to be better off if we have a flat tax rate. It's right. just complete bullshit. It's just a lie. It's absolute rubbish. This misinformation around, in fact, most things are misinformation. This is mis we're really committed to reducing smoking rates, yet we're going to repeal the smoke-free legislation. We're really committed... You should have a word for the associate we're, health... <laughs> we're really committed to improving outcomes for Māori, yet we're, going to, we're not going to use the language. We're going to, we're going to have a treaty referendum if Seymour got way and, and all that kind of stuff. So we're really committed to all these things, but actually we're not. We're committed to the Paris goals, yet we've cancelled all the cycle and walkways. We're really committed to having a robust, safe continuance of Highway 1 from the North Island to the South Island, but we're, but we're not going to have, we're not investing in any ferries. We're really committed to these things, but we're not. Actually, it's the idea of porkies and porkies and a whole lot of porkies eventually become a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of porkies. A whole lot of porkies become, become a conspiracy. Maybe we could rename a packet of porkies as a what would we call a whole lot of porkies? A conspiracy. A conspiracy of porkies. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's a new one for us. What would we call a whole lot of what's A murder of crows. A murder a of crows. A conspiracy yeah, of porkies. A conspiracy of porkies. Anyway. You've obviously had a very interesting career all over the place. You've done a lot of different things. I want to ask you, is there, do you have any regrets? Is there anything that you would have done differently? Regrets are kind of strange thing, isn't it? I, I, sh I regret giving up Latin to do physics at school. That's a serious regret because I enjoyed Latin and I didn't really enjoy physics. Do I regret things? Yeah. I look back at my time at the Ministry of Health and I feel that I did achieve some significant things. And I think the establishment of the first proper quality improvement committee, national quality improvement committee, that, and the work that we did to establish the Health Quality and Safety Commission was fabulous. And, I, and that was a real achievement. But the, I do think that I could have done better on the whole joining up front to actually work much more closely with my ministry colleagues to establish that as a kind of new modus operandi for them. So I remember reading in your book, yeah. and I, don't, I want to know how often yeah. this happened. Yeah. I remember reading the book of you coming, I think you had a meeting with the Minister of Health yeah. and talking about some report. Yeah. I think it was about obesity yeah. or something yeah. like that, and yeah. that they basically oh, yeah. barely read the executive yeah. summary and yeah. all that. Did you find yeah. that was happening quite a bit? Oh, it happens all the time. And there, there was some fantastic... Because you've named some names of the people that you've worked with. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well you know... There's a lot of politics in all of this too, but there are, there's no shortage of solutions out there. And I look at some of the reports that have been written, and there was one done recently, commissioned by, I think, KPMG a few years ago on diabetes. Fantastic report. And if you were to be really interested in dealing with diabetes, that report offers a way head to toe to do that. There have been some fantastic work done. So the sort of regret, I suppose, is that we don't have to come up with a whole lot of answers that are there. What could I have done more to shine a light on some of those, um, that issue that actually let's get out there and do the thing and do the thing and talk to the people who are doing the work mm. and actually engaging them and giving them the license to get on and support them to be successful. And I'm hoping that will get done. 
at some stage. Because and, and interestingly, the health minister has recently come on the record about how he sees the reform as a centralisation and, and, and what he wants to do is shift that decision-making out into the regions. That was the original intention of the reform, which is funny, isn't it? It's interesting, and very it, ironic. But, yeah. but it's really good yeah. that he's done that. And actually, if he wants to do that... There will be support, I think. Well, if he wants to do that, the health, yeah, there will be lots of support for it. But actually, that's a big ch- culture change. That's where the charter, com- the charter comes in. And I led that work with others. And the health charter was, you know, tabled in Parliament in August last year. Mm. And it would be a very useful tool for him to think about how that might be used to assist him in getting that done, if he really means it. One of the great things about doing that work for the charter, I met with thousands of people, teams of people all the way through from rich orthopedic surgeons making fucking millions, through to people on a minimum wage looking after the most vulnerable in their homes. And they all had hope. They were all wanting to contribute. They all saw opportunities to do better for their patients and for the for their communities. So there's no shortage of hope. Hope gets hope becomes diminished and will becomes diminished over time when things get tough and there's no support. But I don't think it's ever extinguished. I think there is opportunity there. It's just a question of realizing it, seeing it, supporting it. We have time for one last question. Okay. So David. What is like your guilty pleasure TV or film? Oh, God. Okay. I like human drama. Oh, yeah? Do you yeah. like a Grey's Anatomy ER kind no, of person? No, not so much or... that. Oh, yes, in a way. <laughs> I did. I'll talk about one of the things I saw most recently was the two series of The Bear. Oh, The TV Bear show? on yeah. Disney. Yeah. Yeah, I've been telling Nina we should watch that. My but Nina, 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 snubbed, Nina snubbed me. She was like, no, I don't want to watch this. Don't want to watch that. And I was like, why not? Wow. And, then we, and then I don't know if you've seen, there's a the, the main character, the main actor in it. Yeah. He was in a Calvin Klein ad. Oh, yes, I did. You've I did seen the it. ad? No, I haven't seen the ad, but I do know that he was in. I heard yeah. it reported. And, and, After and anyway, he won a Golden Globe, I think, or Nina, around that time. Nina saw the Calvin Klein ad, and it's basically him prancing about doing a bunch of pull-up chin-ups yeah. in, in, in slow motion <laughs> in, his, in, in his Calvin Klein underwear. Oh. And now suddenly Nina wants, wants to now watch suddenly Nina wants to watch the wants to watch the show to watch well, it. You know, the thing about the bear is that I love food and I cook a lot. And my daughter's a pastry chef, and she's a she's been in restaurants and 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 you know, she knows just how tough and brutal they can be. And this particular series and program really has a very close look at the personalities and people within this particular restaurant, the backstories and how they play out in real time. And it's a stunning human drama. It's the most extraordinary, riveting program. And it's not all happy endings, that's for sure. And there will be more series, obviously. But it's a really fabulous watch. And I thought it was sensational. So that's one of the more recent things I have watched. I do watch crap. Some of those old American series, Dallas, and things like that from when we were young. And there were these sort of human dramas playing out with lots of hairspray and oil, big oil and cowboy hats and family um, disloyalties and stuff like that. And and this program, um, Yellowstone, was billed as being one of the most popular television shows in the United States. And it's been around a while, I think. I've, I think. I'm not sure. but So I watched a couple of episodes of it. And was reminded very much of old school American television. And I don't think I'll be watching anymore. Why is that? Because I was just... Was a bit disappointing? Well, 
I liked it. I felt guilty liking some parts of it. <laughs> I thought this is a monumental waste of time. Is this my life, sitting here watching the shit? There you have it, people. Watch <laughs> the bear, but not Yellowstone. Yeah, so I thought, yeah. you know, shit, is this how I'm going to spend my life? Sitting here, I'm going to get a DVT or hemorrhoids, and, and I'm cutting my life short. Time Fine. you'll never get back. Time I will never get back, Nina. So, you know, there is, it's kind of, you know, there is, you know, it's tricky, isn't it? You know, when you have time on your hands, or when you don't have time on your hands. That's an interesting thing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, David. Oh, thanks, Nina. It's, and thank you for coming over. Thank you, Connor. Thank you. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titi to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.